2 Samuel chapter 12. There are two kinds of trouble that a family will experience. Trouble that comes from within and trouble that comes from without. And the trouble that comes from within is the most difficult to endure. Now that is not to say that the trouble that comes from without is not devastating, for it is. A few years ago, you may have watched the mini-series entitled The Holocaust. And if you did, you were horrified by the story of this family of Jews that got picked off one by one by this terrible persecution. And you could not say to that family that the, that the trouble and the suffering that came from without was not devastating, for it truly was. But when there is trouble from within, there's something uniquely grievous about that, where there is resentment and hatred and tension and pressure, where there is disharmony and disagreement. That kind of trouble from within is so difficult to endure. That's what we're going to be studying tonight, as a matter of fact. But before we get there, I want you to turn with me to the book of Galatians. Just hold this place. I want to, I want to point out two verses of Scripture from Galatians 6. And what I want to do with this verse of Scripture, these verses of Scripture, is to establish the general principle that we'll, we'll, we'll be building upon and looking at for the next two Sunday nights. A general principle... Now these two verses, 7 and 8, are the most familiar, probably, of, verses, of the verses in the book of Galatians. And they begin with a unique warning, do not be deceived. And the reason why I think that he puts that in there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that we are, there is the tremendous potential to be deceived at the point about which he's to address. And so he wants us to be aware that there, 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 is, there is oftentimes a deception at the point of believing what he's about to say. Now this is what he says. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption end of warning. Now this is the principle, and, and the first part of the principle, there are two parts to it. Now I want you to jot these down. We reap what we sow. We reap what we sow, forgiveness notwithstanding. Can you write that down? We reap what we sow, forgiveness notwithstanding. Now here is where we are often deceived, it's at this point, because I think we, are, we, we assume that all we have to do when we sin is just to ask forgiveness and everything's taken care of. That if I just acknowledge my sin and own up to it and face up to my sin, I can count on God just to remove everything, remove the problem, and put me back on track as though nothing happened. For after all, we are children under grace, are we not? So that we've just assumed that, that because we're children under grace, when I sin, when we sin, 
All we got to do is just acknowledge our sin and God will forgive us and everything will be back like it was. It is true that we are children under grace, but what that means is that God in forgiving you will give you to the strength to endure the consequences. Let me give you an example. Suppose that I am in, in the process of sinning, I break my arm. I don't expect that if I acknowledge my sin, I no longer have a broken arm. I mean, that's not going to just do away with the consequences of my sin, you see. So that notwithstanding forgiveness, we reap what we sow, principle number one. The backside of that principle is this. Get, get this down, please. The pain of the harvest, the pain of the harvest eclipses the pleasure of the sowing. The pain of the harvest always eclipses the pleasure of the sowing. If you can think of a farmer goes out sowing seed, just, you know. Now, now if a pe person tells you that to sow the seeds of sin is not pleasurable, he's not telling you the truth, you know. There is a pleasure for a season in sin, any sin, even in the anticipation of it. But the pain of the harvest is eclipses the pleasure of the sowing, and we reap what we sow, forgiveness notwithstanding. Now, I know sometimes people say, well, now you preachers get up and you try to scare us, you know, and you, you talk about those texts, you know, be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever man sows that shall he also reap. And you pull out this, you know, all these scare tactics and lay, us on, lay it on us. That's really not scare tactic. What that is, is preventive theology. Now there are two kinds of theology. There is corrective theology and there is preventive theology. Let, let me see if I can illustrate the two. Suppose you're going to, you know, uh, there's two ways to, to teach your child, teach your kid how to drive a car, okay? Corrective uh, driver's training would be this. You get the kid, and you say, okay, here's the keys, there's the car, you know? And, and here, now, now, when you have your wreck, you know, it's not if you have your wreck, but when you have your wreck, I want you to take this name, this number, that's the insurance adjuster, that's the guy that owns the insurance. And this is the number of the, of the tow truck you, know, you need to call. And, and this is the hospital number. When you have your wreck, you need these numbers. Be sure and call them. That's corrective driver's ed. There is another way to teach your kid how to drive your car, and that is to say, now here are the rules, and this is how you drive, and these are the rules of the road, and these, this is the instruction on how to drive the car, and these are the laws that you have to obey so that you won't have a wreck. Now most of us do not know how, do not know how to quote or do not quote Romans 6.13. We do often quote 1 John 1.9. Now we do quote, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that is a way to deal with sin, but it's not the best way to deal with sin. That is corrective theology. That is saying that when you sin, you confess your sin and he forgives your sin and cleanses you of all unrighteousness. That's a way to deal with sin, but that's not the best way to deal with sin. 
The best way to deal with sin is Romans 6.13. This is what that says. Most of you could never quote it. It says this. Do not go on yielding your members to sin as instruments to unrighteousness, but yield yourself to God and your members as instruments to righteousness. Now what Paul is saying there is this. You don't need to sin. You don't have to sin. You can live without sin if you live your life in total yieldedness to God, yielding yourself to Him. And that is the way to deal with sin. Why do we sin? Because we love to sin. And sometimes it's necessary, it is necessary for us to do a little thought into life. Now wait a minute. If I sin, what is going to be the consequence of that sin? Oh, I will be forgiven. Am I not forgiven? Yes, you are forgiven. But even with forgiveness, the consequences are not removed. Not even for a king who is after God's own heart. Now, chapter 12, verse 7. Nathan comes to David, and we noticed this last week, and he points his finger at him and gives him those four words, three-letter words, You are the man. Verse 13, David acknowledges his sin. He says in verse 13, I have sinned. I have sinned. But I want you to look at verse 10. Now David has, has, has been confronted with his sin, and verse 10 says, Now therefore, now therefore, the sword shall never... Would you circle that, please, if you're taking notes? You got a pencil? The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. You have sinned, and the consequences of that sin will never, never leave your house. Now, I need to say some things in preface, and I want you to listen up carefully because I could be so misunderstood and make some people so mad at me. I need to, to say a couple of things before I get into this. First is this. I have not said that all sin bears the same consequence. I will not say that, and I'm not saying it now, that all sin bears the same consequence. God fits the consequence to the person, and it is His choice. I've not said that if a person sins against God, he's going to have trouble in his home. The second thing I am not saying is this, that if you have trouble in your home, it's because you as a parent have sinned. I've not said that. I not forget, a man came to me one time, a man in my church, and he had this son who was really rebellious and just brought unbearable grief to him, his, his wife. And he would say to me, what have I done? You know, what am I, what, what is God punishing? What, what have I, how have I failed, you see? One's the most godly couple I've ever known. I am not saying that if there's trouble in your home, you need to go back, you have sinned, and you'll bang the consequence of that. I have not said that. What I am saying is this. I am saying that we reap what we sow, forgiveness notwithstanding. I have said that, and I am saying that the pain of the reaping is, 
eclipses the pleasure of the sowing, and that is the principle that is laid down in this story. Now remember this, that the New Testament gives us the principles of the Christian faith. And the Old Testament does what? You answer me. I've said that enough. You ought to know it by now. The Old Testament gives us the... Oh, great. All right, one more time. The New Testament gives us the principles of the Christian life, and the Old Testament gives us the pictures of the Christian life, or the Christian faith. Now, the principle is that we sow what we reap, even if we are, for, even when we are forgiven. And you're going to get a picture of it tonight in graphic technicolor. As a matter of fact, Job said, according to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. And Hosea said, Israel has sowed to the wind and reaps the whirlwind. John Warner has a book called Down to Earth. He has a, the subtitle of that book is the, the Law of the Harvest. I'm interested in the second law of the seven laws of the harvest that he traces through the Bible. It is this, that we reap in kind what we sow, so that if you sow to the flesh, you reap what the flesh produces. And even when you are forgiven, even though grace comes to sweeping over you to bring forgiveness, you will suffer the consequence of that sin and that consequence will never be removed. And the sad and tragic fact is, and part of it all is, that not only do you reap the consequences, but the consequences bleed over into the lives of those around you. And that's the sadness of this story. Now, the, 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 the forewarning in the, in the outline is that the sword of the Lord will never depart from your house. Now, we're going to look quickly now at these eight steps in the downward trend of David's grief. Now, if we study the life of David and we don't you know, learn something that would help us to live a different life, we failed, really. I mean, it's not a historical lesson. But I want you to see the downward steps in the life of David's grief. What, how, what this man suffered because of his one night of sin. Number one, I hope kids, I hope you'll put your ear to this. What happens just one night of sin. All right, first, there is marital infidelity in David's house. Chapter 12, verse 11, look. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Now the Hebrew word there for companion is a word that means an intimate relationship and is probably a reference to one's child, one's own child. And what he's saying is that your own child, your own son, will be engaged in marital infidelity with your wives. Now, did it happen? Well, turn to the 16th chapter of this Second Samuel and look with me at verse 21. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, now Absalom is David's son, 
Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious, odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you also will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof of David's own house, where his sin with Bathsheba was consummated. And Absalom went into his father's wives in the sight of all Israel, and at the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the Word of God. I mean, they did what he told them to do, did Absalom, as though God told him to do it. It was something he just he couldn't go back on. It was as if, it was as if God was giving the command himself. So that David's own son, David's own son committed marital infidelity with David's wives in broad open daylight to all Israel's sight. Second step is the loss of a newborn baby. Now please don't misunderstand me here. If there is a family you know that's lost a child, don't go and say that the preacher said the loss of that child. I've already, I've already laid down what... You know, that, that you can't interpret what I'm saying that way. What we're looking at is the consequences of this man's sin, and God fits the consequence to the person, and it's his choice. But what we're establishing is that consequences are the inevitable result of sin. Loss of his baby. Verses 17 and 19. Look at verse 19. When David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Third consequence. One of David's sons rapes his sister. One of David's sons rapes his sister. It's a disgraceful scene. And it's found in the 13th chapter of 2 Samuel, verses 1 through 14. Have I, have I, have I, do you understand what I'm talking about? There is no sorrow, there is no suffering like the trouble that comes from within one's family. Now David had a wife by the name of Maoah, and to this wife were born two children, Absalom and Tamar. They were, bro they were brothers and sisters. He had another relationship, and to that relationship was born another son. His name was Amnon. Now Amnon was the half-brother of Tamar and Absalom, they had the same father, but a different mother. And Abnon lusted after Tamar, his half-sister. She was a beautiful girl. And in this sordid scene that you can read, he lusts after her, he, he desires her. And when she resisted his advances, he rapes her. A man by the name of Jonadab sets up the sordid plot, and the scenario comes like this. This beautiful girl, Tamar, something like you'd see on, you know... What are those? What are those shows? What is, what is it to you? Not Dallas, but some of those Friday night serials. Come on, huh? Coming in. Something like you'd see on Knox Landing. That's one of them. Knox Landing. Here we go. Here's this Tamar, you know, beautiful girl, and Amnon, and and so he he rapes her. And a strange thing happens after he rapes his half-sister. He loathes her. He despises her. Let me tell you something. Sin does a strange thing to the emotions. He hates her as much as he loved her. 
and he despises her now as much as he lusted after her. And when it happens, she goes, flees to the house of her brother Absalom and tells him about it. So you get the fourth consequence. Verse 20 through 22. You've got a brother who hates his brother. Now I need to read that. Chapter 12, verses 20 through 20. Chapter 13, verses 20 through 22. Then Absalom, her brother, said to her, As Amnon, your brother, been with you, but now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. Don't tell anybody, he said. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Now when King David heard all these matters, he was very angry. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon. Can you, you, you can imagine that. He hated Amnon because he had violated his sister. And, the, and if you read verses 22 through 23, it says that he didn't speak to his brother for two years. He hated him for what he'd done to his sister. The question I have is, where's David in all this? Two years, this boy didn't speak to his brother. Where's David? The only, I've, I've looked through this. The only reaction I can find of David toward this is verse 21 says he got very angry. Well, hoorah for him. Well, let me tell you where he was. He was an absent father. That's where he was. And even though this was going on under the roof of his own house, he was too busy. He was, he was an absent father. Let me say parenthetically that we're living in an age of the absent father and the mother was never intended to be designed for the authority of the home. But the mother by default has had to accept the authority of the father. Here's old David. He's angry about it, but he's not doing anything about it. And while it was going on, after two years, Absalom began to... To, to, to unfold his plots, found in verse 27. He says to his father, we got some sheep shears coming down. Why not all, the, all my brothers and half-brothers, why don't you all come down? I, I want you to read this. I don't have time to read, but he, he began to beg his father. Let all, now, you know, here was Davy. This boy hadn't spoken to his brother for two years, and he's wanting his brother now to go with him down where these sheep shearers are going to be. And David tells him, no, you can't, no, no that's not possible, but... But verse 27 says he intimidated his father and kept on badgering him. Finally, David said, okay, go on, just get out of here. Take him with you. Come to the fifth consequence. Brother murders brother. Verse 28, killed his brother. When there is resentment and there is anger and there is hatred among siblings and it grows without some kind of intervention and help, it, it moves toward murder, at least in the mind. Sixth consequence, verse 34 of chapter 13. Now Absalom fled. So here you have a runaway and rebellious son. The brothers, his sons, begin to hate one another. And, and his brother, one brother murders another and rebels and runs away. What a terrible price one pays for sin. David, would you go back if you knew this was going to happen and do that again? Not on your life, never, never. There's no pain like the suffering that comes from within. Consequence number seven, verse 34. 
of that same verse, that same verse, Absalom, lead, Absalom leads a conspiracy against his father. Look at this. You'll have to see this in, the, in, the, in there. And the young man who was the watchman raised his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him. He has an army now of men, does Absalom. And he's going to develop this conspiracy against his own father. Absalom leads a conspiracy against his dad. Now, just read along with me the last consequence and just let this kind of soak in. We're going to read two or three verses. One is the 28th verse of the 14th chapter. Now, Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem. Where's David? He's in Jerusalem. You ever been to Jerusalem? If you've been to Jerusalem in modern day, it's not that big a city. It was a, a mine, it was it's much smaller this day than, than it is now. And Absalom lived in the same town with his father for two full years and never looked him, never saw his face. In the same town, probably a stone's throw from one another, and and and, and there is such a a a, a rift, a a division between father and son. They live in the same town, much like Durant, and never saw one another. Can you imagine what that must have been like to that father? Chapter 15, verse 14. And David said to all his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us shall escape from Absalom. Now who is in charge here? The father? No, the son is in charge. I couldn't count tonight, I couldn't count on this, these hands the number of homes that I've been in, even in Durant, Oklahoma, where the kids are in charge. Not only is this father an absent father, but now he is he's on the run, is this parent, and the kid is in control. And there is a seething animosity and hatred in this for this, this boy's heart for his father. Peter Lord said that one night, after a worship service, he was going through the auditorium and he noticed some paper, kind of like what I pick up, you know, occasionally notes around. He, he, he picked up this note and it was written by a kid. The kid signed his name. The kid said this, I hate my father. I hate my dad. I wish he were dead. He never says anything good about me. All he does is criticize me and condemn me. I wish he were dead. I hate him. Signed his name. Well, Peter Lawrence said it was a cry for help, but anyway, you can just feel this boy Absalom's hatred for his father. Let me read one other verse. Chapter 18, verse 32. Because you see, Absalom now is dead. Absalom, as Joab has murdered Absalom in the battle. Then the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate. 
and wept. And thus he said as he walked, can you see him walking up and down, pacing up and down, you know, wringing his hands behind him, up and down is this father. You have to be a father to, to, to feel this. And as he paces up and down, he is saying, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, would to God I died for thee. Now, I can't hardly even say that without emotion. I preached a sermon on this text, the, the sin of a father one time, and I got this letter. It was the, the most pathetic thing this, this guy said, I was going through your town. I was preaching out in West Texas and I was on the radio. He said, I was going through your town Sunday and I just was thumbing through the dial trying to get some music and I heard you preach. I heard you preaching. And he said, I don't, I, I don't listen to sermons, but he said, somehow I was a, attracted to listen to that sermon. And he said, you were preaching about Absalom and David. And he said, I want you to know you were talking about me, he said. He said, I haven't been to church in years, but he said, I'm going through that same experience. He said, I could identify with that man crying for his son. And he said, I want you to know that I've gone back to, to my town. He lived in Tulsa, as a matter of fact. He said, I've gone back to Tulsa. And he said, I'm going to get my life right and get in church. A letter I, he wrote me, West Texas. Just put pastor, First Baptist Church, Tulia, Texas. Let me, let me say something quickly here. I don't care who you are, parent or young person, if you trample on the grace of God and if you take that grace lightly and you think that God's grace is going to cover everything you've done, you've missed it. For what is going to take place is that you're going to reap what you sow in kind. And the pain of that reaping far eclipses whatever pleasure there is in the sin. And you can thumb through whatever you're thumbing through and totally ignore me. That's okay. But the warning needs to come from this pulpit to everybody who hears this voice, to the preacher and the rest of us, that regardless of how near we are to the heart of God, king or whatever, chosen of God, when a man sins, he reaps the consequences of it. And when you see David pacing up and down in that chamber weeping over his son, you know some feel of that, that consequence. And the tragedy of it all is that David's sin had repercussions that spread out into the lives of others. And that's so tragic. So tragic. Now what are we going to do about it? Let me say two things that need to be said and need to be heard. Parents, parents, it's time for us to say no to some things because if we continue on indulging ourselves, absent fathers involved in, you know, trying to beat the Joneses, etc., 
It's time we said no to some things and began to reestablish in the home the fundamentals of a, of a Christian home, both husband and wife. It's time we said no to sin and return to some godliness in the home before we suffer for it and our kids suffer for it. And the second thing I need to say is this, that there needs to be for some of us an admission, my life is out of whack and I can't go on like this. I'm going to repent. My life is out of whack and I'm going to get back to God and I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to repent from it and I'm going to beg God to give me strength to endure the consequence. But I know that if I continue on the way I'm going, the consequences are going to be unbearable for me and my family. For me and my friends, for me and my associates, my life is out of whack and I'm going to face up to the fact that I only am the one responsible for my sin, not somebody else. Me, I'm responsible for it. Now, I can blame anybody else. I'm going to accept the responsibility. I have sinned, and I'm going to get my life back with God. That's what we need to do. And tomorrow's too late. But tonight is just right. Let's pray. Father, the urgency of this message, Father, burn into our hearts. And may there be the acknowledgement on our part and the repentance. And let us do it, Lord, before the consequences get out of control, out of out of our life into the lives of others. For I pray in the precious name of Jesus and I ask it for His sake. The song we're going to sing for invitation is this, I need Thee, oh, I need Thee, every hour I need Thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to Thee. And if there is need tonight, it is to the Savior that you need to come. And if there is sin in your life, if, there is, if you are trifling with the grace of God, taking lightly His mercy, His goodness, living in, in conscious rejection of the will of God and conscious, deliberate rejection of the Word of God and the law of God. And it's time to get that right. We'll be the first to say, I need to come to the Lord. I need to be saved. I need rededication of my life. I need to get right. Who will do it while we stand and sing?